0: have your Bibles. I'd love for you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have some location consciousness of Scripture, you get to 1 Peter 5 and you probably think of verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. You have an adversary that walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's a great verse. This chapter actually starts out with Peter addressing pastors He's telling them that they should serve willingly, not by constraint. That they should serve because God called them, not because they're greedy for money. That they shouldn't lord over the flock, but rather they should be an example of Christian living to the flock. But sandwiched between that address and verse 8, I find an interesting recipe for success in life. It's paradoxical what is communicated. Here's a reality. A lot of people are living empty lives. We're dominated by a great desire to achieve success that greatly takes up all of our bandwidth in one way or another. Regardless of our arena in life, we're chasing it with everything that we have. We're looking for validity. We're chasing down fulfillment. We're seeking out contentment in every way. The irony is this. There is never enough success in anybody's life to ever make them feel completely satisfied. In fact, one wrote this. Instead of satisfaction when we live like that, we become full of ourselves. Full of our agenda. Our goals, our plans, our projects, our accomplishments, how terribly dissatisfying it is to be wrapped up in ourselves. But this marketing, this messaging about success is coming at us from all angles. It's really ingrained into us from our youngest days. As I was preparing for this message, I came across one who said the messaging for success largely comes at us in four varieties. There is success and it requires fortune. We're told that we need, if we're ever going to be successful, to have a lot of money. Now understand, scripturally founded, there is nothing wrong with having a lot of money, but I've yet to ever discover, and I know the Bible communicates, that no one has ever found complete happiness in merely gathering more money. However, I would like to test the theory. I imagine you would too. If it's not fortune that we're supposed to chase down, here's another way that we can find success. It's fame. We're told that if we're ever going to have success, we're going to have to be known in the public arena, a celebrity, a social somebody. Fame then equates popularity with significance. If it's not fortune or fame, then it's got to be power. Power is your way to success. You need to wield a lot of power. You need to take charge and be in control. You need to expect and demand respect. If it's not power, then it's pleasure. We're told, and the old adage is, if it feels good, do it. Success then is being able to do what you want, when you want, with no repercussions whatsoever. And yet I began by saying there are too many people living empty lives and we are bombarded with this messaging for success, fortune, fame, power, and or pleasure. But isn't something in all of that messaging missing? That seems to be very much a horizontal view. The vertical dimension is entirely absent. Not one hint of God's will. Not one thought of what pleases God is in there. And yet most people want satisfaction. Most people long for fulfillment. They desire to have success. And that's what brings us to where we are in three verses this morning that I want to study with you. There's a paradox contained in them. And it's this, as one wrote, Ironically, according to Christian faith, the way up always comes by going down. It's God's ancient plan. It makes no sense to the modern world. It does not match the messaging that we are bombarded with. It does not seem to make any sense, and yet when it is tested, we find that it is eternally true. And I want you to note with me in Peter's letter now, verse 5 of chapter 5. Likewise, Now, just stick with me a moment. Ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth. For you. Now again, I've already established this. The world's strategy, if you are ever going to be quote unquote up, is work hard. And a good work ethic is certainly scriptural and it's valid. But if you're ever going to be up, if you're ever going to get ahead, you need to scratch and claw your way there. It doesn't matter who you step on. It doesn't matter who you step over. It doesn't matter who you push. Just chase it and then God steps in with an ancient plan and it hits entirely different. If you and I are ever going to achieve the right kind of success, there are three imperatives that he outlines for us that are utterly unavoidable, counterintuitive, paradoxical to the knowledge of the world. The first one is this, submission, subjection subjection by its very definition seems to be the opposite of success and yet Peter said in verse 5 ye younger submit yourselves unto the elder yea all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility now it's interesting what Peter does here Peter addresses something that is incredibly relevant and this was in the first century church In the first century church, there was what we might call generational warfare. And Peter is addressing the attitude of respect from the younger in the church unto the older that are in the church. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of gray heads or bald heads who are going, Exactly. You should respect us. You should do what we want. You say, Pastor, do you actually think there is such a thing as general warf- generational warfare within the church? Yes. How many of you are familiar with the term boomer? Yeah. How many of you think that has positive connotation? How many of you are familiar with the term millennial? How many of you think that has positive connotation? No, no, no. Boomers are stodgy, stuck in ruts, right? Boomers, we would think, are the kind of people that if we ever try to promote something with a QR code, they flip out and think it's the mark of the beast. I have no idea what it is that you've put up there. People are looking at each other right now going, what is a QR code? What? (laughs) If you tell them, like, we have a church website, they're like, oh, a what? Yeah, you have to have Wi-Fi. What? You have to have a computer, a smartphone. What? What? Let me get out my BlackBerry. Can you show me on my BlackBerry how I can access this? And then the older generation thinks of the younger generation, and here's their thought process. They have no commitment whatsoever. They're not willing to work for anything. All they do is complain and complain and complain. Generational warfare is a very real thing. It takes place in your workspace. It's in your neighborhood, and it can creep into the church. And what Peter is addressing from the onset is, you younger, be willing to submit yourself unto the older. Respect the older believers. Show deference to them. Watch them. Honor their years of experience and their seasoned lives. You say, man, that's hard. Oh, try being pastor. At 47 years old, with... They say this, this scares me to death. These, these are statistics. This, is, this isn't even preaching. This is just talking now. That successful pastors can tend to reach people on 15 years of both sides of them, which means I can effectively get to 62-year-olds and 32-year-olds. And as I get older, yikes, so does the church tend to get older, unless I can stay incredibly relevant hip and young which, duh, of course that's going to happen. I'm smack dab in the middle, and we have an extremely eclectic church body. We have people that say to them, I come because that guy wears a suit and they sing hymns. And I do hate the screens. I know they use them, but he still tells the truth. And then we have other people who say, I hate going there because they only sing hymns, but I'll tell you that guy, he at least tells you the truth. All kinds. And we have people that think to themselves, I wish we could do things a little bit different. And other people who think, if he ever changes one thing, I'm going to punch him right in the throat. (laughs) Generational warfare is a very real thing that can exist within the church. And Peter is attempting to quell it. You say, now, pastor, hold on. Not every seasoned saint is actually a great Christian. Precisely. One wrote this. Not every senior saint is a mature Christian, of course. Because quantity of years is no guarantee of quality of experience. This is not to suggest that the older church members quote-unquote run the church and never listen to the younger members. Too often, though, there is generational warfare within the church. The older people resistant, the younger people resistant to the older. And Peter's quelling it. Here's what he's saying. If you ever want to get up, you've got to willing, be willing to go down and submit. It's twofold. Submit to each other and submit to God. And then he comes back and he says this. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. There is not one person in this room, myself included, that is off the hook. All of you be subject one to another. To another, and clothe yourselves with humility. It's like a garment that we put on humility. Now, clothe yourself with humility is a very interesting phrase in the language, it's metaphorical, it literally depicts tying a knot. Clothe yourself with humility. What it is communicating is someone who takes the apron of a servant and ties it on themselves with a knot before they begin household chores. How many of you even know what household chores are? How many of you right now could go home and actually put on what you would call work clothes? How many of you have no idea what work clothes are? And all the millennials raised their hands. <sighs> Work clothes. That's what's being communicated. I happen to believe that Peter has in his mind's eye right now what Jesus did in the upper room. In John chapter 13, listen to the language explicitly here. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Get this. "'Riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded.'" And we're told... All of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Every time you interact with another human, you should be in your work clothes. You should have your apron tied on and you should be in service mode. And you're never off the hook because that's in the present tense, meaning continually be subject unto. Submission is an ongoing lifestyle. This is the remedy for bitterness and resentment. This is the remedy for exploitation and selfishness. This is the remedy for generational warfare. Be subject to each other. Peter adds to this command. And in doing so, he's quoting from Proverbs. Here's what Proverbs 3.34 says. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. The wise shall inherit glory, but... Shame shall be the promotion of fools. Be clothed. God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes those who are proud. Two things are communicated. Pride always brings contention and the opposition of God. And secondarily, God's nature mandates submission. For the unbeliever... What this indicates is you have to come to an end in yourself. You have no merit, no works. The only way to salvation is to submit yourself to God's plan for salvation, which is Jesus and only Jesus. For the believer, you have to realize that you yourself are unworthy and that anything that is good in you, it is from God, and you submit yourself To others, because that's God's plan. And Peter says he gives grace to those people, to the humble. James says something similar, though he elaborates on it. Listen to what James says in James 4, 6. He giveth more grace. Wherefore, so he gives more grace. This is why he said God Resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Don't you think it would be dumb for me to take on a professional fighter? Say, no, I have faith in you, Pastor. You could take him. Now, some of you are just sadistic and you're thinking, no, I'd love to see you get punched in the face by somebody. It would be foolish for me to take on a professional fighter. I'm a pastor. It would be even dumber for me to take on the God of the universe. And what he is saying is, if you have pride in you, God opposes you. But if you are humble, he will give more grace to you when you find that you need it. Grace, one wrote, for every situation. We have no need which outstrips his grace For daily need, daily grace. For sudden need, sudden grace. For overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. The tense of this verb is God is continuously showering grace and those that are humble receive it and those who are proud, he's opposed to. Here's a beautiful thing. We, by nature, are needy and God, by nature, is giving. It's a really good deal for us. We need grace and he always gives it. The qualifier there is he gives grace to the humble. To those who really know that they need it. You might think I can't imagine there's anybody here that would say I'm fine. I don't need the grace of God. But the reality is we live that. You must understand and I must understand those who benefit most from grace are those who recognize they need it most. And those who need it most and recognize it will receive it most and thank Him most and love Him most. You can't do anything without God. Submit to His plan. If you are ever going to truly be up, submission is your way there. Go down to get up. The second thing, absolutely blows my mind i cannot in one message possibly take in all this truth process it and understand it here's what he says in verse six he's telling us now about humility he is directly addressing our attitude so lock in for just a second and listen to what he this is massive in its truth verse six humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god that he may exalt you in due time. Now, I don't want to bore you to death. I don't want to beat you to death with original language, but this is a passive verb. What this means is allow yourself to be humbled. Maybe another way for me to say this is is accept your circumstances. Accept them. Accept your humble circumstances. Allow yourself to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Now, in the Old Testament, God's hand symbolizes his sovereign control. There's biblical precedent for this. It's under the sovereign control. Every circumstance of life is under the hand of God. Under the mighty hand of God, he used his mighty hand to defeat the enemies of his people. He used his mighty hand to fulfill his purposes, his promises for his beloved. That's what he's talking about, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Talking about a reversal of misfortune, a reversal of hardship, a reversal of what you might consider suffering. And he says, in due time, he will exalt you. Now, from the onset, I need to just be truthful with you. That may not be in this life. But in eternity, he will set all things right. In his timing, which is perfect, he will exalt you. But get the truth. Allow yourself to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Accept your humble circumstances and allow him to exalt you in his perfect timing. Refuse to hurry the timing of God. Refuse to manipulate people. Refuse to go through life charging ahead. Allow God to set the pace. Now, there are some people in here who are really skilled. They're incredibly eloquent and articulate, and they can use words to manipulate people. Some are intimidating and they'll scream and shout. And by their sheer force and their temperament, they they get their way. Other people are manipulative. Maybe they know how to use the silent treatment or emotionally control somebody. And all of us are skilled in some way of getting where we want to go in life or getting out of life what we want to get out of life by coercing. And Peter steps in and says, no, not you. The way for you to get up is to go down and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Well, what in the world do I do then if I'm not getting what I feel I deserve? What if I'm in my workplace or in my profession? What if I'm not getting what I deserve? What if I'm not getting the thanks that I feel like I should be receiving? And and I'm in a situation where I can make things happen. Now, I really want God to do it. But I'm I'm in a moment where I can kind of shortcut this. I can expedite the process. What do I do? Well, good thing there's a biblical precedent for this. This staggers me. Just dive in. David was anointed to be the king of Israel, he was young. He's anointed to be king, and it's God who says, You're it. You are my king. The guy who's on the throne right now, Saul, he's done wrong, and the kingdom is to be rent from him, and you are the guy. Here's the oil on your head. Here's my prophet saying it. You're the king. And then Saul, who was a monumental jerk, Saul who was under the control of an evil spirit, Saul literally is trying to kill David. He's working against the plan of God. Unquestionably, Saul is in the wrong. David is set to be king. Now, David is running for his life. He's hiding out in En Gedi. It's a region in Israel. There are sheep coats and there are little caves where David and his mighty men, which was a ragtag group of misfits, are hiding out in the caves. Saul hires 3,000 trained military killers to go hunt David down to snuff him out. Somebody comes to Saul and says, Saul, David is out in the strongholds. He's hiding in the caves of En Gedi. That's it. Boys, mount up. Let's go kill this guy. And that's where we pick this up, 1 Samuel 24. And it came to pass. When Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. Now, that's a really strange Bible phrase, isn't it? Saul went in to cover his feet. Why does the Bible say maybe his feet were hot? He had to get in a cave and cover his feet. It's metaphorical. Saul went in to relieve himself. He went in to use the bathroom. You say, come on. That's so Old Testament. Yes. But it's in there intentionally. And here's why I think it's in there intentionally. No king is taking his private security with him into the cave to relieve himself. I believe that's put in there so that we grasp just how vulnerable Saul is in this moment. Now, it just so happens that Saul chooses to relieve himself in the cave where David is hiding with his ragtag group of misfits in the dark sides of the cave. Now, let's listen into the conversation in verse 4. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Now, David's got Goliath's sword, that's his weapon. David's men are whispering, This is it. This is what we've been praying for. Your moment has arrived. And David walking through the cave, I think all of the men are pretty amped. It's over. No more hiding in caves. We're with the king. And David simply cuts a piece of Saul's robe so that he can later on prove to Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And the Bible says the moment that David cut the robe of Saul, his heart smote him. And he thought, who am I? Who do I think I am? What am I doing trying to coerce and manipulate this situation? And here's the truth. Saul was in the wrong. But it wasn't David's job to make it right. Saul was in the wrong. But it wasn't David who was in charge of the timing. David knew God had to do the exalting. Now, two chapters later, this is stunning. Two chapters later, David and his men stumble upon Saul and his men, and Saul is lights out asleep. Abishai, one of David's mighty men, says to David, David, (laughs) you didn't handle business in the cave, but we got another opportunity here. And maybe it was that you didn't want blood on your hands, so here's the deal. I will go over there where Saul is sleeping. No blood on your hands. I will take my spear. I will run. I will stick him to the ground. This is over. No blood on your hands, man. It's over. This is our moment. And David says this in 1 Samuel 26:10. As the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or He shall descend into battle and perish. But it's not up to me. You say, come on, man. Isn't there a biblical principle that says God helps those that help themselves? That is not a biblical principle. That is rooted in carnality. You say, isn't there some effort that I must put forth? All that we do must be humbling ourselves under the hand of God allowing us to accept our circumstances, and in due time, he'll exalt us. This is what David said the first time they met. The Lord judge between me and thee. The Lord avenge me of thee. Mine hand shall not be upon thee. Three verses later, the Lord therefore be judge between me and thee. He'll plead my cause. He'll deliver me out of your hand. I'm not going to retaliate. That is so hard. That's stunning and how hard that is. Someone will say something about you. There will be a moment where you will be confronted with an opportunity where you can coerce, you can manipulate, you can scheme. And here's the principle. The only way to ever actually get up is to bow down under the hand of God and allow Him in His perfect timing to exalt you. That is so incredibly challenging. I urge you, let God do the promoting. Let God do the exalting. That's exactly what Jesus did when he humbled himself for the cross. He say, I want to be just like Jesus. Yeah, minus the insults. Minus the cross. Minus the unfair treatment. That's not how it works. Jesus humbled himself, and he said, The day will come where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he humbled himself to the cross, waiting for the perfect exaltation timing of his father. Do you humble yourself? The way up is down. Get down and serve. Bow down under the mighty hand of God. And the third principle is this. Release. Set down. Let go. Verse 7. This one you know. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The word casting literally means throw it. Throw it completely on the mercy and care of God. I know this is true. I love how thorough the Bible is. As we submit to one another and to God, and as we humble ourselves under his mighty hand and allow ourselves to accept our circumstances, inevitably there will be anxiety. There will be stuff to fret about. We will be filled with care. And so he sums it up by saying, now, set that down. Get down and serve others. Bow down under the mighty hand of God, and when you're filled with anxiety and fret and care about what you're missing out on or what you're allowing to happen, release all that to God. Give Him all that. It's beautiful what He says. Cast, that's intentional. Take it off and throw it on Him. All of your care. That word that is used there are, are the areas of life that disturb your sleep. You ever have those? I hate waking up in the night, and I do it like 11 times. I hate waking up in the night. My wheels start turning, and I cannot shut them off, and I start thinking about everything that is beyond my control, even stuff that's years away. That's the exact word here, those things which disturb your sleep. In fact, Greek philosophers wrote this, the foolish tried to drown these kinds of cares in love or in drink. Here was their assessment. But only death can free us from these cares of life. And Peter and the Holy Spirit step in and say, but not so for the believer. But not so for the Christian. Paul will say it this way. Be careful. Don't be filled with care for one thing, but rather give it to God in prayer. Let God carry it. There's intention there. Cast your burden on the Lord. Let him carry it. Let Him have it. I love how one author framed it. He said this, and this is beautiful. You don't surrender to your circumstances. You surrender your circumstances to the Savior. Why? Because He cares for you. Say the whole thing. He cares for you. And the word again, careth for you, indicates he knows who you are, he understands your personal story, and he personally and intentionally cares for you. If we are humbling ourselves under the sovereign hand of God, understand every situation that we encounter, he knew was coming down the line, tie it in again to the grace that is available, and he has sufficient grace to cover whatever need is there, if you'll humble yourself. He cares for you. It's amazing to think that at this moment right now, at this moment right now, God knows your name. He knows your name. You say, well, yeah, I know. He knows the hair that's on my head. and Yeah, he knows you. He knows where you co- He can still see your childhood bedroom. God is not bound by time. He still knows about your relationship with your mom. He knows about your relationship with your dad. He knows what the workplace, he knows you. He knows you, he knows what you're worried about right now. And a little bit about when is this guy going to get done. He knows that. He's not happy with you. He knows you. He knows you. He cares about you. In a world where you feel lost and in a world where you feel alone and in a world where you feel directionless, the creator God of the whole universe cares about you. And Peter is telling us there are some things that we need to set down. There are some things that we need to release, some things that we need to let go of. Each of these imperatives requires a downward motion. The world is telling you and me, if you're ever going to get up, you must have fame, fortune, power, or pleasure. And God's ancient plan steps in and is so paradoxical. Rather, he says, get down and serve. The very definition of subjection is the antithesis of success. And yet, he says, get down, put your apron on, get your work clothes on, serve other people. He then says, Bow down and be humble. You say, You don't know what's going on in my life. I don't. I can't possibly. You don't know what's going on in my life. You can't possibly. But I know He actually does and He truly cares. Allow yourself to be humbled, accept your current circumstances. That's really practical. And stop the manipulation, stop the coercion, stop flexing, stop forcing, stop kicking, stop screaming, stop the bitterness and the anger and the resentment. He's got a plan, and in due time, he's going to exalt you. What if that's not till heaven? So is his plan then. And then the third thing is set down and release. Set it down. You're carrying stuff you were never meant to carry. Your frame was never meant to bear up under that load. Let him have it. You say, you mean that I can cast it on Jesus and he'll carry it for you. All the way to the finish line. He can bear it. The fact is, submission to others plus humility before God minus the worries of this life equal genuine relief and satisfaction. That's paradoxical. The way up for a believer is actually to go down. In due time, he'll exalt. It's an ancient plan. It doesn't seem sensible, but I'm telling you now, put your work clothes on and serve other people accept your current circumstances and let God have it. And when that anxiety inevitably rises up and fret begins to creep in and the cares start to weigh, give it to Jesus, set it down, give it to Jesus, release it to him. Would you with me bow your heads for just a moment?